St. John Fisher and St. Thomas More. Pray for us. St. John Ogilvy. Pray for us. St. Ignatius. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good evening and welcome to our first talk of this year's Faith Winter Conference, uh, which will be given by Father Dylan James. Father Dylan is a priest of the Diocese of Plymouth, where he is currently the parish priest of West Moors in Dorset. He has been involved in the faith movement since university when he attended the London Faith Forum. In addition to a degree in mathematical physics, Father Dylan has a doctorate in moral theology and currently teaches at Warnersh Seminary. Father Dillon is a Star Wars fan and believes, perhaps controversially, that all good Catholics should devote themselves to the Sith and, <laughs> and seek the eradication of the Jedi. And in case you were wondering, his lightsaber is red. <laughs> Tonight, however, he will be speaking on the topic of virtue. Father Dillon. Well, good evening, everyone. It's a great pleasure for me to talk to you tonight because I'm speaking about um, the subject I love the most. Uh, I teach this. I was privileged enough to be sent away to study this. Uh, and I'm giving you a one evening, or less than an hour, hopefully a little more than a half hour summary of what I spend a whole year running through with the seminarians. And I love my subject because it interacts directly with my life. Moral theology is about how we live. You know, some people have to teach Greek. Um, <laughs> I get to teach something that directly impacts on how I live uh, and on how the people, if they're listening, um, how they live as well. And what I'm going to try and articulate to you is this thing called virtue. Um, and it's a very ancient way of looking at the moral life, but it's also a way that's been rediscovered uh, in the latter half of the 20th century with a renewed energy um, in many Catholic circles. So I want to start by considering, I'm afraid this screen is fairly small. Can you read the, oh, the scar at the back there, yes. Read the words there. I've said there are three things that all people want in life. Now, I'm afraid I'm going to assert these rather than argue for them. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later. But three things that all people want to have in life. And three things that are related to virtue. Um, first, everyone wants to be happy. So there's Mr. Happy. We all want to be happy. Nobody wants to be miserable. We all wants excellence in certain forms, even if we aren't sure quite what form of excellence we want. And we all have this vague concept of the good. We want the good and we want to be good. So what I'm going to talk about and talk about virtue is talk about how all these things fit together. So I want to start by thinking of a question that kind of runs through all of this, which is, what does it mean when we say that something is good? Because it's a word we use all the time. That was a good film I went to last night. Um, the latest Star Wars film did not merit that category. <laughs> but what does it mean when we're talking about behaviour 
and somebody looks at your behaviour and they say, that was good. Or they look at your behaviour and they don't say that. Well, why is something good? At primary school, when you were told to do this and not do that, and you said, why? Or what was the answer? Why is something good? Well, one answer is because I say so. And bad teachers, dare I say, often say that to children. Rather than explain a reason, they say, because I say so. So we've got a, an image there of Sister Euphemia with her ruler. Um, because I say so. The answer to the question, why is it good? Because I say so. And if that's your mentality, not just as a bad teacher, but your whole way of approaching life, then your dominant paradigms, I've said, that are going to be obedience and obeying the law. And there's a way of thinking in our Catholic world, particularly of an older generation, of a, an Irish Jansenist generation, it's only a certain type of Catholicism that had this, not the authentic version, I would be arguing, where this was the dominant thing. Well, there's a different way of approaching the whole question, why is something good? And that's to talk about purpose, fulfillment, goal. Here's a different image. I said, why is something good? Because it fulfills its purpose. And I've got an image there of a train track. Now, a train track is taking you somewhere. If you go off the train track, you're a train driver and you don't want to go on the track. Um, well, you know, what happens to you? It doesn't have a happy ending. Um, if you feel constricted by the track, well, that's not actually going to end well for you. In a model of goodness that talks about fulfillment and purpose, the dominant paradigms aren't obedience, but are fulfillment and perversion. And a thing is good if it fulfills its purpose. So I'm going to articulate that now at some more length. And I'm going to articulate an argument to you in three stages. I'm going to first talk about it says a thing. What do we mean when we call a thing good? Then, I'm talking about activity, human activity. What does it mean to call a human action good? And then, as the kind of goal of this whole thing, a person. What do we mean when we say, that's a good person? Yeah, so there's three stages I'm going to run through here. So the first thing, a good thing. So here we have a thing. We have a watch. So if I was to ask you, is that a good watch? The answer you would give me would depend on whether it achieves its function. Now that might, you might look at it and say, that's a, a beautiful watch, that's a fashionable watch, that's a kind of watch I'd like to have on my wrist. But if it doesn't tell the time, then it's just a beautiful piece of jewellery. It's not actually a good watch. But when we use the word watch, uh, when we use the word good about a thing, we're meaning it as an evaluation of its function. Yeah, so a good thing 
Good is evaluating the function of the thing. Which means you've got to know what the function of the thing is. If it's a piece of jewellery you want, or is it a watch you want? A good thing. Okay, well, what we're really interested in is activity, human activity. So let's think of an example of a good action. Yes? So, is this a good act or not? Here we have somebody eating, eating a hamburger. Now, is that a good action or not? If we're going to evaluate his action, we've got to evaluate it in terms of its function. Eating, for a human being, has a function. It's part of a, a whole thing I depend on in my life. So how would we evaluate whether that's a good act? Well, is it nutritious? Because we eat for nutrition. Is it um, the right quantity? You know, if I eat three of those, I'm probably not going to be able to fulfill the other functions I need to do in life. Whereas, um, I went out for a meal with my parents yesterday, the burger arrived and it was embarrassingly small. Now, it failed to achieve its function for a different reason. It wasn't large enough to give nutrition. But there is a function to eating. Eating is one example of a human activity. And when we say something is good, that act, the act of eating, is it good or not, we're evaluating it with respect to its function, its purpose. So, three words I've put on the small side, far too small to read on the back there. Function, measure, and repetition. I'm going to come through to those words repeatedly in future slides. But they're all related to what I'm going to try and articulate here. The most obvious thing I started with, though, is the quantity. If there isn't enough, or if there's too much, that's one of the ways in which we would evaluate the eating and say it's not a good act. I want to unpack that in a bit of detail. So in um, moral theology, what I call, what's called virtue ethics, um, following the language of Aristotle, even before Jesus Christ, when we speak about virtue, we talk about right measure. That in a human activity, there's a way of measuring it, of it being right or not. But what is the right measure? Well, in our world today, there are lots of people who deny that there's such a thing as right measure. That, yeah, well, there's this thing, subjectivism. That, it, well, it's all up to you. What weight do you want to be? So, you know, three examples of bodily form there. Um, is there such a thing as right measure? Maybe you want to, to look like this. Maybe you want that whole package of activity whereby you live for pleasure. That you don't live with pleasure attached to eating. So Aristotle says um, pleasure is attached to eating. That proper eating has a healthy pleasure that goes with it. 
When you overeat, you get a different sensation. When you undereat, you don't really get that sensation. Every good action, in its completion, in its fulfillment, has a corresponding different pleasure that goes with it. So there's the pleasure that you get with eating. Those of you that are students, now, there's that moment in a student's life when you finish the assignment, yes, and it's done. Now, there's a pleasure that goes with that. It's not the pleasure of food. It's a kind of intellectual pleasure, but it is a real pleasure. Well, each type of human activity, when done correctly, when done in right measure, when it achieves its goal and purpose, there's a corresponding pleasure that attaches to it and is a a sign of it being right. But Aristotle notes Lots of people try to grab the pleasure without the activity. And in our world today, in our Western culture, we have so much food. This is a big part of how we've almost come to think things are normal, to overindulge ourselves continually. But Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, after him as you know, a Catholic theologian, sees there's a proper way in which these things fit together. So, right measure, back to where I was going with this. Subjectivism in our world today says there is no such thing as right measure. It's just up to you. Well, there's this other notion I've touched on already that would refer to the the legalistic answer to this question. So, because I say so. What's the right amount of food to eat? Because I say so. I gave you that size hamburger. That's the right size. Because I say so. In which you then have a command given to you. That's the basis of whether it's right or wrong. Now you can't read that at the back. There's a philosopher in the Middle Ages called William of Ockham. He posed the question, well, what if God commanded you to hate him? So in the Bible, God commands you to love him. But what if instead God appeared today and God commanded you to hate him? And he's God. Well, if he says so, he commands so, does that then become good? Because he said so. Well, if your definition of goodness is all about command and law and because I said so, then God could command something that's the opposite of what he said before. He could somehow command something that a more Catholic answer would say is actually contrary to his nature. If God is love, well, he can't command us to hate. Which suggests that there's an answer to this question of what is good, of what is right measure, that isn't just about command, isn't just because I say so. So here you have a picture of nature, the beauty of nature. Now the Catholic answer to right measure is that nature and nature's God gives us the right measure. So where does this world come from? It comes from God. God who is a rational being, who has made the world in a rational manner. And what he commands, therefore, isn't random, isn't arbitrary. 
He can't command the opposite of what he's made. It would then not be fulfilled. It would then not reach its goal. That what is, St. Thomas says, a command, um, a law is a command directing you to the end, directing you to your goal, directing you to your fulfillment. God wants you to get to your goal. And so he commands you to get there. He, he doesn't just point to it, he commands you to get there. But his command isn't arbitrary. And right measure isn't arbitrary. The deepest meaning of nature in this context isn't about the mountains and the trees, but it's about what we are. What is my nature as a human being? What has God made me to be? What in what I've been made fulfills me or doesn't fulfill me? What activity gets me to my goal or what activity just perverts and corrupts me? Right measured activity doesn't pervert me. Right measured activity gets me to the goal. And when I look into my nature clearly, I'm able to see the right measure that God has written into me. So the truth about, you know, in our culture now, it's very much an obscured truth. But the truth about marriage, about being made male and female, about being made to find completion in each other, in a lifelong commitment, in giving to each other, a giving to each other that in itself has a tendency to generate life. That you can figure all that out by looking at your nature. That nature indicates right reason. Right reason written into us by God. The law written on our heart, written into our nature. The very opposite of an arbitrary command. Right measure, inbuilt purposes in human activities. Now I've got three pictures here. I've got the watch, I've got an image of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and I've got an image of the cosmos, so to speak, a star system. Part of what I'm articulating here is that there is therefore in all of human activities a purpose in them that we don't invent for ourselves, that we don't choose for ourselves, but is written into them. Even before I come into birth, how I, the right way to behave, the properly measured way to behave in all kinds of different parts of my activity is already inbuilt because of the type of being that I am. In making the Big Bang from that very beginning, God has established the pattern um, by which our inbuilt purposes are there in all that we do. Okay, I said three stages in my argumentation. What do we mean by a good thing? And I said the watch, we evaluate it according to its function. I said then, 
an action. What do we mean by a human, a good action? Well, an action that is achieving the function, the purpose of that particular activity. The next question I want us to move on to is, what then is a good human? And that means we've got to know the answer to this question. What is the human end or function? And the word function obviously sounds a bit weird to describe a human for, because we use function for artefacts, machinery and so forth. But if we keep the notion of a creator, of a plan by the creator, that there is in me a reason I was made, a goal, an end, a function I've been made for. Well, what is that function? <coughs> now, there are many ways you can try and answer that question. Aristotle outlines four different arguments when he approaches this question. But he looks at human activity and he says, well, what do we see humans doing? What are they wanting? What are they striving for? He says, what they all want, what they're, all their activity is aiming towards is happiness. We all want to be happy. And that therefore, he says, that must be the goal we exist for, our human end. So here I've got an image of a, a hand reaching for the sun, as an, an image of striving for happiness, that there is just this drive within us. We all want to be happy. So St. Augustine in his Confessions, when he, you know, if you know St. Augustine's Confessions, he lived a pretty bad life early on, he became a great saint, and he reaches this moment when he's looking back and writing his life story, looking at how he behaved, looking at all the things he uh, threw his life into. And he reflects, he says, he says, all people desire joy. All people agree about desiring the last end, which is happiness or beatitude in the Latin. He notes that humans disagree about where they think they'll find joy. That some people think they'll be happy if they do this. Some people think they'll be happy if they do that. But nobody wants to be miserable. So even, even the moody teenager sulking in his bedroom, well, he's, he's enjoying wallowing in his misery. He's enjoying sulking. He's lowered his... Um, what he thinks is achievable in terms of happiness, but even in that he's getting some satisfaction, a very reduced joy in his sulking, in his wallowing, in his misery. That even when we look in the wrong places and look in the wrong ways, we do all want to be happy. So St. Augustine um, and he follows the same line of argument used by, before him by Aristotle and later by St. Thomas Aquinas, looks at all the different places that human beings look for happiness, that some people look for it in money and wealth. Other people look for it in vanity and appearance. Others in honours and being respected by other people. Others in physical pleasure, 
whether it's sex or food. That people have all kinds of different things that they think, if I have that, I'll have happiness. And he notes that none of these quite make it. None of them give us a happiness that lasts, that all of these things are unstable, unreliable, that the happiness we're striving for is more than that. And so the only good that can truly satisfy this yearning for happiness in all of us, the only good that can satisfy has to be a good that includes all of those goods, the comprehensive good, namely God. Only God can satisfy this yearning for happiness within us. And in fact, the yearning for happiness, the yearning for joy is a desire for God. That we in our limited human thinking imagine happiness and God being separated. But God, the philosophers tell us, is simple. He's not divided into categories. And in him, perfect joy, perfect love, God is all one. It's all simple. So this desire for joy is actually the desire for God, even when we don't know it. So that human happiness is found in God alone. So, the human person, I've said Earlier, he's judged good with respect to whether or not he achieves his end. The Greek would be telos, his end of happiness. That's a good person if he's happy. That's his goal. He's achieved it. So Mr. Happy is Mr. Excellent, is Mr. Good. That all of these things fit together. And with that, as we read so many of the saints observe, joy is one of the signs of a saint. There aren't miserable saints out there. The saints were glad. And that that goes with love. Um, So to quote a, a saint from the last century, to be happy, what you need is not an easy life, but a heart which is in love. So the young man in love with a girl, he doesn't need to be told to be happy. That happiness just flows out of the fact he's in love. That joy flows out of love. That these things seem to be separate to us, but in God they're all one, and in the yearning of the heart, when it's right, it all comes together. Okay, so I'm now reaching the conclusion of the talk. Um, This is a talk about virtue, and I'm going to bring this all together by talking not just so much about an individual good action, an individual good thing, but within us, when there's this thing called virtue, what is there? Well, first, the word virtue means excellence. So, the man of virtue is a man of excellence. 
Secondly, virtue is a tendency. So to quote the catechism, it's an habitual disposition to do the good in concrete circumstances. So when you have a habit of something, you just naturally tend to do it. So if every morning when the alarm goes off, you ignore it, you have a habit of ignoring it. It's just a tendency within you. Um, Or if you have a virtue, you have the opposite. You have a tendency to the good in concrete circumstances. And what's wonderful, important about virtue is this tendency, not just I did this one thing right once and that was it, but actually I've got this tendency to do the right thing. Well, if it's hard work being good, well, if there's something you can develop in you that gives you a a tendency to it, well, you want it. That's virtue. But not all habits are good habits. So there are virtues uh, and there are vices. Um, So if you have a, a bad habit in you, that's what we call a vice. A good habit, a virtue. Now, this is, at a practical level, the key point. Repetition. What what causes this tendency to grow in you? What causes virtue to grow in you? Not doing it right once, not doing it right twice, but doing it right again and again and again forms, by repetition, a tendency to just semi-automatically Do it next time. So it's in doing things that we make ourselves. It's in repetition of doing things that we cause tendencies to grow in us. So Aristotle famously said, we become builders by building and harpists by playing the harp. So if you want to become a great harpist, Sitting down and reading a book won't do it. You've got to actually pick up a harp and do the harp playing to grow in the tendency so that your fingers semi-automatically do the harp playing. It's the same with all of our human activity. By repeating our activity, we form tendencies in ourselves, either good virtues or bad vices. But not all the tendencies within me are caused by me. There are some tendencies within me that I'm just born with, things that are within me um, because I'm bodily. So we have this thing called the passions. Um, So... Here we have a picture, a donut or some carrots and broccoli. Um, which passion is awakened in you as you see those? Yes? Um, now, if every morning for breakfast I have three donuts, I will reach a stage by repetition in which the passions, the bodily element within me, will just automatically see three donuts and think, hmm, breakfast. And it will feel right to me. 
And I might have all kinds of other things that are wrong with me in terms of my size, my shape, my cholesterol level. Um, But that decision-making will have become semi-automatic. Whereas conversely, if I have habituated myself by eating vegetables again and again and again, um, I can train myself to look at vegetables and think, actually, that's normal. That's what I want to eat. That's food. Um, By the activity we repeat, we train ourselves to aim for that the next time. Now, we all, all I imagine you all know the word concupiscence. Concupiscence is this reference to the fact that we are born with this inbuilt tendency to sin. That we're, it's like having one leg, that you have a tendency to fall over. You're not necessarily going to fall over, but you have a tendency to fall over. Now, if you train your passions by growing in virtue, you train counter-tendencies. So that concupiscence is still within you, but you're building up something else within you that gives you tendencies to various good. Okay, what this means, therefore, is if you have virtue, then being good, in a very real sense, becomes easy because you have this tendency to it. Now, you can't really see. um, The the word, there's a little green S there. Just want to briefly make the point, virtue is in the plural. Um, So being virtuous isn't about having virtue as a single thing, but actually there's every single different bit of human activity has a different end, a different goal, a different fulfillment. And each of those activities, I can grow in that particular virtue. And all the virtues relate to each other. And if I'm a Christian, they should all be interrelated towards the ultimate goal of union in God. But when I'm seeking to grow in my different virtues, it helps frequently to to focus on them individually and seek to repeat those individual things. And if you've got a good spiritual director and you're weak in one thing, he will help you train in a particular virtue that will be what's called an allied virtue. It will support you not necessarily in the direct fight you struggle with, but as a a backup, an allied virtue to help you in that struggle. So given the example there um, at the bottom, excellent car driving. Now, if you're going to drive your car in an excellent manner, that's not just a single activity, but there's lots of activities that relate to it. So you need patience. You need physical skill in training. Also, I've indica- suggested that you need attentiveness to others. Yeah? So the, your possession of Christian charity would change how you drive. Um, so any single specific human activity, something as detailed as driving the car, there's a whole bunch of other activities, other virtues that relate, support that particular virtue and that we grow in it by repeating it.
Okay, before I conclude, I want to come back to the question of the law. So I, I started with that um, image of Sister Euphemia with her ruler. Um, is the law what it's all about? Because there's a way of sometimes preachers preaching in which everything becomes about the law. This is what God has told you to do. Well, is the law the purpose of life? Is that why God made you? In order that you might obey his law? Well, there was a tendency, particularly before the Second Vatican Council and what were called the manuals of moral theology, where the moral life was predominantly presented in terms of the law. And this isn't the more ancient practice. Um, I'd Very briefly, I would say this is a reaction to Protestantism. So Protestantism, by focusing on the Bible, on God's commands, um, the counter-Reformation, also focused on the same categories. So we also became law-focused in our presentation of the moral life. But if you were a doctor, uh, to use an analogy here, that would be like focusing on the skeleton. Now, is this a healthy person? <laughs> yes. Now, he might have a very healthy skeleton. He might have great bones, wonderful bones. Um, but if your vision of the moral life is just about obeying the law, then you will obey the law, or you might, and that's a great thing. But it's like having a healthy skeleton. It's not what the whole package is about. It's not even what the skeleton's about. The skeleton's there for something else, yes? Now there is, so after the Second Vatican Council, we had a, a different period in the church where everybody or lots of people were running around saying, well, don't worry about the law, don't worry about the law, just do what you want. Um, be free. Well... <laughs> If you remove the skeleton, you don't look too good either. Um, freedom is not the purpose of life. Freedom, the skeleton exists for something else. The flesh exists for something else. There's an integrated whole there. So that's what you could be um, if you have them all together. So final slide, putting this all together. So three things everybody's looking for. Everyone wants to be happy, everyone wants to be good, everyone wants to be excellent. That man's end, the striving within us, all of us, we want to be happy. We judge somebody to be good or not, whether you achieve your end, whether you are happy. The saints are filled with joy. You're excellent. If you possess this, in the stability of virtue, virtue that grows in us by repetition of the related good acts. Thank you very much.